Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I told you last week that the kingdom here and now looks a lot different while we await the coming of the Son of Man. And when that kingdom comes, it will look a lot different. And in light of this fact that we are waiting for the coming of the Son of Man, where we are right now in God's plan... Jesus brings up the subject of how we talk with God. I'm curious, does your prayer life ever look like this? Press green, go! Press green for go! I guess the video didn't show the first five seconds. That was uh, my grandson. You knew, you kind of figured that out, didn't you, from, from our vacation. And uh, his first time in go-karts, and he found himself in one bumper, and he was stuck. And as soon as they freed him up, he went right over to the other bumper, and he was stuck again. 
Lennon could not make any progress around the track because he kept hitting the guardrails. And if we were to be honest, many of us have been just that frustrated in our prayer lives. And today's parable keeps us from getting stuck on the guardrails on either side of the track. On one side, the trap is of being too passive. Have you ever watched a child cry in the corner? And everything inside of you says, just use your words. Just tell me what you want, please. But they sit and they cry and everyone gets frustrated. And on the other side of the track is a trap of being too presumptuous. I know what I want, I know how I want it, and I want it now. And sometimes our prayer life is like the child in the corner. Sometimes our prayer life is like the arrogance of the Pharisee. Now, I have noticed that when I am watching something on either side of the road, I I tend to drift towards that item. But you've probably noticed the rub marks on the side of the barricades and on the sides of the barriers. And those rub marks happen because people got too close to the barriers. And so my goal this morning in exposing these guardrails is not to cause you to drift towards those rails, but to notice the rub marks so that we will know how important it is to make sure that we don't get too close to passivity or to presumption. Jesus' first parable in Luke chapter 18 converges on the reality that persistence, not hesitance, makes prayer effective. The first story talks about a woman who is seeking justice. And two words frame our understanding of this parable. The word widow in the first part of verse 3, and the word adversary at the end of verse 3. As a widow, she would only appear on her own behalf before a judge if she had no other sons, relatives, or male friends who could serve as her advocate. And so the fact that this widow repeatedly goes to the judge indicates that although she is disregarded in that culture, she has no other recourse. No one to plea her case, so she continues to go to the judge. Because her very survival depends upon finding justice in this matter. And so she kept coming to him. So we have an ostracized or a downridden widow who is being bullied by an adversary. This word for adversary normally indicates one who brings a charge in a lawsuit. 
the accuser or the plaintiff. So it's not like the woman was going after the man. The reality is, is her accuser had gone after her. And so now she's asking the judge to rule justly. She's not the one who initiated the court proceedings. And of all the speculations and all of the commentaries that I saw this week, the one that makes the most sense to me is where Arlen Hilkren speculates, perhaps she did not get her rightful share of her husband's property. Or perhaps she was about to be evicted from her home. And so this scoundrel who had a lien against the estate or this landlord who was about to put her out into the streets is the adversary that she faces. And all she is asking of the judge is give me what is just. I also notice that not only is she being bullied, but her persistence is described in verse 5. This widow keeps bothering me. Her repeated coming was so frequent that it threatened to, quote, beat down the judge. He says, she keeps coming to me, and so that she won't beat me down, I'll give her what she asked for. This term, to beat down the judge literally means to strike in the face as if boxing. But here, it's in the weakened sense of wearing him out or making him tired of her persistence. It specifically has the idea of leaving someone with a black eye. The judge says, this woman keeps coming to me, and if I don't do something, she's going to give me a black eye. Now, we don't know if she carried a crowbar in her purse or if she just left him so haggard that he had circles under his eyes. But she needed justice, and so she kept coming to him with persistence. Give me justice. Give me justice. Give me what is right. Now, as we talk about persistence, allow me to take a little bit of a rabbit trail because it's important that we talk about what persistence is not. As we consider the little old lady who is threatening to leave the judge with a black eye and we're thinking about how the unrighteous judge is about to respond to the woman, Jesus quickly moves from the specifics of this parable to a contrast. He said, this is what the unrighteous judge is doing. However, God issues justice speedily. As we draw the principle of persistence in our prayer, it's important that we know what our prayer is not supposed to be. Persistence is not petulant whining. God does not respond well to whining. Exodus chapter 16, the people whined about being hungry, so God gave them manna. Then they complained, manna again? So God gave them quail. 
And anybody who has lived in a city where pigeons multiply know what a mess the birds make. They whined, they asked for something, God gave them what they asked for, and then they said, is there any way we can make this go away? In 1 Samuel, the, the, the people whined for a king. Give us a king like all the other nations have. And God gives them what they ask for, but they soon find out they didn't know what they were demanding. See, the the persistence that Jesus is talking about here is not about whining and moaning and groaning and complaining. It's also the persistence in the repetition is not a meaningless repetition. Because Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 gives us a very clear prohibition about just rattling on with empty phrases. We are to be persistent in our prayers but not just repeating empty phrases. So if that's what persistence is not, let me take a moment to talk about what persistence is. Persistence is repetition. Because verse 3 says, she kept coming. It reminds me of the words, without ceasing. Acts chapter 12, verse 5, Romans chapter 1, verse 9, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy, four times in the New Testament, From both Luke and Paul, we hear that our prayer ought to be without ceasing. Now, this word without ceasing does not mean like a record with a skip. And those of you who have never listened to vinyl, ask your parents what I'm talking about. See, all of us at one time or another had that tickle in our throat that just wouldn't go away. And no matter how hard you tried to clear it, no matter what flavor the lossage that you suck on, or, or even a drink of water, but nothing can get that urge to cough to go away. It just can't be suppressed. That's the idea of without ceasing. It's not like, Again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and then finish the rest of the song. But it's a, a persistence that won't go away. It's, this is something that needs to happen. You, you remember those times when you coughed so frequently that your diaphragm began to hurt every time you took a deep breath? That hurting diaphragm is a sign of a persistent cough. And that persistence is repetition, not meaningless repetition, but meaningful, repeated crying out to God. And that's the type of persistence that has demonstrated this widow. I I, I see that she was persistent, but she wasn't persistent about her own personal pleasure. She she wasn't simply seeking something that she wanted, something that was her aspiration, something that was her dream. This repetition was not like the the hints that a, a spouse drops before a birthday. Or those hints or those catalogs that get left open just before your anniversary. Or just before the beginning of hunting season where the Cabela's catalog all of a sudden falls open around the house. 
She was not like a child who, who wants the latest action figure or, Mommy, can I get a quarter for the machines? Mommy, can I get a quarter for the machines? Mommy, mommy, please, can I just get one quarter for the machines? See, it, it wasn't something for her to spend on a personal pleasure. The reason she was persistent is she was in the pursuit of justice. She wanted what was right, not just something that would make her happy. And when I think about the pursuit of justice, I must admit that the word justice has earned a really bad reputation in recent years. Because some people seek to blame the system rather than the perpetrators. See, it's it's much, much easier to blame a corrupt system to, to blame the industry or to blame the company that has deep pockets with a potential windfall than it is simply to expect restoration by an individual who has committed an injustice. This woman was not trying to upend the whole legal system. She simply said, Judge, will you make him do what is right, what is just towards me in this one situation? I think it may be helpful for us whenever we hear a cry for social or systemic justice, before we get too quick to dismiss it as, well, that's just an immature rant from somebody who wants everything. Ask yourself, is there an absence of biblical justice in this situation? By biblical justice, I mean the justice that reflects the character of God. Is there something in this situation which looks like God's character is not there? And if so, we must be persistent just as this woman to cry out for justice in that situation. Because biblical justice happens speedily. It's not delayed until the appearance of the Son of Man. Remember the whole context, the coming of the kingdom, the ultimate consummation of the kingdom, where the Son of Man will be coming? We don't have to wait for then to experience justice, because Jesus specifically says that God gives justice speedily to those who cry out to him. See, Abraham Kuyper's most famous quote was uttered in his inaugural address at the opening of the Free University in 1880 when he said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. There is not a square inch in our human existence where God's authority is off limits. And so Jesus says, when we cry out to him, he speedily distributes justice in those situations. Because the whole world belongs to God as a reflection of his just character, he is able to speedily give justice when we cry out persistently. But there is a very thin line between persistence and pride. 
If we are not careful, our persistence can easily become demanding. And demanding anything is a sign of pride. If I demand this because I think I deserve it, that's pride at work. This proud mindset is described in verse 9 very explicitly. They were so filled with themselves that they disdained others. In contrast, though, we find that humility, not pride, makes prayer effective. The humility I see is reflected in two postures in verses 11 and 13. In verse 11, we have a man who is standing by himself in a way that others could gather around him and hear his great prayer. But sometimes a prayer is not a prayer. You've heard them. Sometimes a prayer is a speech. Now, I've heard some teachers say with good intentions that they reprimand those who repeatedly use the Lord's name in a prayer. And their thought is that once we have the Lord's attention, we don't have to keep calling for it. But I find that using different titles for God remind me of who I'm talking to. Is a particular comment asking the Father to do something? Am I thanking the Son for something He did for us? Am I submitting to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in some, pop, uh, in some particular direction? It's good for me to make sure that I am not preaching to you to remind myself of who I'm praying to. And this man lost that lesson. Because he's standing where everyone can hear him. Verse 12, he's bragging on his own accomplishments. He fasted more than was required by the law. He tithed on his gross, not his net. But R.T. France comments, the smug self-congratulation is what stands out. It reminds one of the later rabbi who instructed Jewish men to thank God that they had not been born a heathen, a woman, or a slave. Self-congratulation. If, as was normal, he was praying aloud, the insensitivity is even greater because it's an element of self-advertisement that's added to his smugness. God, I thank you that I am not like those. But on the other hand, there was a second Because actually this one man, to this day, in the temple, it's divided into sections where a, where a self-righteous person could say, I'm glad I'm not like those, because this area is reserved for men only, except somehow this little girl slipped through. You'll see that there are women in this section, and over here is where the tourists and the non-Jews are allowed to stand. 
So we can imagine very easily how a person would stand in this area and say, I'm thankful that I'm not like them or like those. Because he was so full of himself. Was that a prayer of thanksgiving? Or was it his own press release? On the other hand, the other man was standing far off. In a way that was nobody's business, he was speaking only to God. I think maybe like this guy right here over against the wall. This is just for me and God to hear. Kenneth Bailey describes the meaning of standing far off as he stood at a distance because he did not feel worthy to stand alone with the others who were standing before God's altar. And after the one man recites his speech about what he did, what was expected of a Pharisee, but actually he did nothing more than what was expected of the Pharisees. He wasn't even a grade A Pharisee. But after he recites his speech, then the tax collector humbly but passionately made one request, forgiveness. Have you ever witnessed someone who was so passionate that they literally shook? That's the idea of the passion that this man has as he repeatedly beat upon his chest. Of all my study this week, this one line rose to the top of everything that I wanted to explain. The revenue agent's cry for mercy is, quote, it's not the usual word for mercy. He here asks a very specific request. It's not only, God, will you be merciful to me? He says, God, will you deal with my sin? He admitted his sin, and he asked for forgiveness. This cry of the tax gatherer introduces an important theological principle. And this is where I'm going to get a little bit deep. So I'm warning you now, uh, 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 put on your thinking caps. This word, as the man cries, God, be merciful to me, he's talking about the dual blessing of expiation and propitiation. And I guarantee you won't use those words at the water cooler this week. But it is true, and it's something that we need to understand. See, one of the criticisms of the New International Version is the way the translators handled Romans 3.25, Hebrews 2.17, and 1 John 4.10. Because in those three places, the Bible has this word of propitiation. And the King James uses that word, But the NIV says, since we don't know what propitiation means, it uses the phrase, the atoning sacrifice. 
But the pushback against the term atoning sacrifice was so strong that when other modern translations came to those verses, the New American Standard and the ESV went back to the King James word. Because the value of the word propitiation is significant and it's important and it's more than just a covering sacrifice. Although most of us don't even know what it means. See, the the ideas of expiation and propitiation. Expiation is the idea of having a debt canceled. The, The tax collector does not say, God, I ask that you would forgive the debt of my sin. He says, God, I'm going to ask you to be propitious towards me. I'm asking you not just to wipe out my negative balance. I'm asking you to give me a positive balance in my checking account. And any of us who have ever bounced a check knows the difference between erasing the negative balance and making a positive deposit. And this man says, God, make my account positive because I'm a sinner. You may have heard the word justified, which appears in this text, as just as if I'd never sinned. And that's a good basic explanation for beginners. But God's forgiveness is greater than just the canceling of debt as if I had never sinned. Because God doesn't only refuse to hold our debt against us, he also looks on us with favor. If God is For us, who can be against us? See, God doesn't just overlook our faults. God is for us. The man in Jesus' parable asked, Lord, you know what a sinner I am, and I know what a sinner I am, but I am asking you to look at me favorably anyway. And without minimizing the guilt that he deserved, he was asking, God, will you be for me? God, will you make me more than a conqueror? God, will you do for me Ephesians 3.20? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. That's what he's asking. Not just God overlook my sin. God, I'm asking you to be my advocate. What that humble man received that day would later be described As for our sake, God the Father made Christ to be sin, the one who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the very righteousness of God. When God looks at us, if we are in Christ, the Father sees the perfection of the Son. And that's what the man asked for. God, can you look at me favorably? And Jesus offers that same thing to all of us who call upon the name of the Lord. But before we conclude, there's one other truth that we need to remember. 
And it is this. Effective prayer is not guaranteed just because we are persistent and or humble. As a matter of fact, prayer's effectiveness is not determined by our practice. It's not if we do it the right way, all of a sudden it yields results. The very effectiveness of prayer is dependent upon the person of Jesus, not upon the way we say the words. I kind of drew this analogy. Bad ingredients can ruin a recipe, but good ingredients do not guarantee a good cake. So we need to avoid the bad ingredients, passivity and pride, but still, we depend upon Christ to make a good care, a good cake. Because our effective prayer does not rely upon how we pray, but upon who we pray to. Answered prayer does not hinge on a formula, it trusts in a father. The hanging question of the first parable is found at the end of verse 8. Will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? When the Son of Man comes back, will he find people who actually have faith that God can do something? Are we persistent or have we given up? If we believe God can do something, we will be persistent. In our prayers. And the presence of faith in the world is a result of a relationship with the God who truly views us favorably. We can persist in our prayers because God, who knows us exactly as we are, is the God who chooses to show his favor to us in spite of what we have done. The God who views us with favor is a God that we continue to call out to even though we know where we have failed Him in the past. We're honest with ourselves. We're honest with Him. But He chooses to be a God 